one of the ecosystem services for me or cultural ecosystem services for me is just the the psychological piece to uh, having natural places to um, be inspired by, to be in awe of, um, and to really help continue motivating despite <laughs> a really amazing, I think, and unprecedented challenge we have ahead of us. And I think that I think that I'm probably not alone in that. This is ancestral land of the first people, the Kumeyaay. Nature's benefits, or the goods and services vital to human health and livelihoods, are also called ecosystem services. While there are several categories of ecosystem services, a focus today, and increasingly within the National Estuarine Research Reserve System, is the category of cultural ecosystem services. These are the non-material benefits that result from paired human and environmental interactions and include stewardship, aesthetics, recreation, and education. For places with strong indigenous and local community presence, these encompass environmental conditions that allow for spiritual experiences, cultural heritage, sense of place, and way of life. In this episode of Divided Together, we'll hear from Dr. Kristen Goodrich on her perspective about the Tijuana Estuary's ecosystem services. We'll also hear from Adela Bonilla Armenta, who works in a collective in Los Laureles, Tijuana, Mexico, that focuses on upcycling waste to make beautiful and functional products. And Greg Cady in the Tijuana River Valley in San Diego, who is involved in farm education. We will examine reciprocal relationships with place and hear the stories of two people in a bioregion with livelihoods that are influenced by their being situated in the Tijuana River watershed, yet on different sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm Anne-Marie Tipton, the Education Coordinator for the Tijuana River National Estuarine Research Reserve, and I'll be your guide. My name is Kristen Goodrich. I'm the Coastal Training Program Coordinator at the Tijuana River National Estuarine Research Reserve. A growing field of research is beginning to explore how to measure and talk about ecosystem services as more than just a unidirectional flow from nature to us. This is of particular interest to Kristen. When we think about categories of ecosystem services, we typically think of them in these areas of supporting, provisioning, regulating. But what's of maybe greatest interest to me is the cultural ecosystem services or those benefits that provide are provided to people in these realms of aesthetics or spirituality or recreation or even um, benefits that help human health and even mental health. And the way that I think Cultural ecosystem services are often characterized are these non-material benefits. So some of the benefits that are hard to measure, you know, oftentimes ecosystem services are talked about in very quantitative terms. So they are treated as ways of thinking about economic benefits that come from natural places. But what's a little harder to measure and a little bit harder to quantify and why there are some really interesting research efforts and studies out there are ways to think about how we can qualitatively 
assess what types of ecosystem services are generated by healthy, intact systems. Kristen further explains the types of ecosystem services. Provisioning is a concept or a category that includes uh, services like providing food, providing fresh water, providing resources like wood or fuel or fiber. Regulating is a a different category or concept that, that really points to how natural systems can help maintain some equilibrium. So thinking about particularly important as we face a changing climate, you know, what are some of the ways that these natural systems can help us mitigate and adapt to climate change? One very important service, especially here at the Tijuana Estuary, is flood regulation. In systems that are really impacted by flooding, like our region here in Southern California, you know, we're in a Mediterranean system. It's a really flashy system in that we get a couple rain events. So when those rain events happen, we get pretty significant flooding down here in the Tijuana River Valley. Having natural systems intact that can kind of absorb some of that water and mitigate or regulate um, some of the impacts are a really important ecosystem service. And then supporting is another category where we think about some of the functions of these systems helping to provide nutrient cycling or soil formation or even offering primary production. But the category that's often overlooked, and in part because it may just be hard to measure, is this category of cultural ecosystem services. Kristen puts her whole self into her work, and that sometimes has psychological effects. But inspiration is also derived from this coastal wetland. You know, I think for me, working on climate change adaptation has been a particularly heavy topic. We as scientists are often exposed or learn about some of the impacts of climate change on these places that we love. And it can be, it can be very heavy and it can be a difficult message also to carry if you play a role as a communicator, a science communicator. And so I, um, I guess I could say I gain a lot of my grounding and a lot of my, maintain a lot of my stamina to continue to do this work because every day I come here and I'm able to see what was, um, what was protected, uh, what we still have to save. And that's despite seeing such, you know, in some cases, really significant environmental degradation. I think a lot of my transition into becoming a social scientist has been to try to explore ways that we can qualitatively study some of this because um, there's a lot to be gained from sitting down with individuals who who use the resource, whether it's tradition, have traditional use, you know, our indigenous communities, or um, have more modern <laughs> use here just as a resident of, you know, a community that's adjacent to this protected place. And I think that there's a lot to be gained by sitting down and having conversations to learn more about what it is that people gain from, from having these places um, be protected. Conversations with people like Greg Cady. My name is Greg Cady, and I'm the farm director of Wild Willow Farm. Wild Willow Farm, located just east of the reserve in the Tijuana River Valley, 
is a part of the Resource Conservation District. Its mission is to connect people with the food, with the land, and with each other. They educate people about their regenerative agricultural practices and host events where volunteers can do farm tasks, pull weeds, and take care of their goats and chickens. They don't use any chemical pesticides or fertilizers and focus on biodiversity. The farm itself exists to serve primarily the local community, but they provide field trips to students from all over Southern California. Greg got the spark to do something that made a difference 10 years ago. I've always been really interested in cooking food and uh, grew tomatoes on my apartment patio and different herbs and, and things like that that you know I would use to try a new recipe. Um, and then I, I thought, well, what if, if you know, what's my five-year plan if I could figure out what to do that would be positive on, you know, something that I would enjoy doing and have some sort of impact. And, and I, you know, decided, well, I'm going to try to learn more about it. And I went back to school. Greg began taking classes at San Diego City College and received an associate's degree and also a social science degree for sustainable urban agriculture. And then? And then uh, transferred to a, another university and uh, got a bachelor's in um, agricultural and environmental plant science and got some work on big farms and learned more of the science side of it and um, was really interested in finding a way to, you know, continue that. Greg was then asked to take over the management of Wild Willow Farm. This was a farm that I had been to years and years ago when I was at San Diego City College and met Mel and loved, I've always had a thing where wanted to have my own wood-fired oven and and here it was, this place that, you know, needed some love but uh, has a really great core community. And uh, I think some people saw, you know, there was a change that where this corporate, you know, interest that's come and taken over all the farm, but it's really the farmers are the same. We're all in it because we care about food justice. We care about, you know, making positive change. We all love food and growing food and sharing that. And, and it feels good to see, you know, some, some folks that maybe haven't had access to what real farming is or even, uh, you know, appreciation for nutrition and what they put in their bodies and then, you know, making a lifestyle change based on their experience in farm school or something like that. So um, it, it feels really good to do it. Wild Willow Farm is adjacent to the Tijuana River. While there are definite benefits for a farm to be located next to the largest coastal wetland in Southern California, there are also serious challenges such as sewage flow combined with super high tides. We're very concerned about, you know, the quality of our food and food safety, and we had to wait uh, for soil tests. But, you know, that's that's something, too, that the benefits of really caring for the soil is the way it's able to clean up. And uh, there's there's all sorts of value to having healthy biology in your soil. And I think one of those things is also we were able to, to grow, you know, I think it took us several months before we had a clean soil test, but, uh, and then the farm flooded again. And so, and then, and then we, you know, had uh, a few months after that, we got back to our CSA and then COVID came around and, and uh, had some, you know, challenges with that. It's important to Greg to be a good steward of the land and to not exacerbate the water quality problems by how they run Wild Willow Farm. Where we are, you know, we have to be especially careful because there's a high water table and we're in the, the watershed of the Tuban River. Um, we don't want to be, you know, have a bad example by, you know, putting too much fertilizer and having nitrogen or phosphorus leaching, which is a problem in, that exists in agriculture. And I think that's important to realize that, you know, there's an impact. And, and Cal- California, the 
tagline is we grow the food to feed the world, but there is a, a big impact in the, the main way, you know, agriculture is performed in, you know, primarily the Central Valley. And it, that leaching can cause massive environmental problems where there's, there's, you know, towns where you can't drink the water because it's so polluted directly from overuse of fertilizers. So we're trying to show this is our style of, of doing that. Greg grew up in northern San Diego County and only knew a little bit about the T1 River Valley. But after working there, he started to see how the estuary and the farm are interconnected and values the ecosystem services it provides. I don't think I'd spent much time in Imperial Beach until I moved back down here a few years ago and have since learned and, and I'm interested because where the farm is located and the health of the ecosystem, especially that, that T1 River and and I talked to some of the ranchers that have been down there, and I've heard some of the stories, and um, I know there's just a continued impact on water quality and all all, all kinds of other issues. But uh, you know, I think it's important to you know make sure that we have a healthy ecosystem and we preserve you know the natural biodiversity that's down there. It's a beautiful place. I used to love to come down to the farmers market every Friday just to be able to sit. I was, uh, I would really work hard to harvest all my produce and come out here, and and I feel like it was a big rush. And then I looking at the ocean and this beautiful scenery, and it's kind of uh, keeps everything in perspective. Greg shows his appreciation of the many ecosystem services, cultural included, from the salt marsh and its surrounding habitats, and how he describes his experience of the ocean calming him at a busy day selling his produce at the farmers market. It's, it's a, you know, bird sanctuary. So we, we have amazing uh, variety of birds that fly over the farm. And, you know, we see benefits of pollinators. Most, you know, flowering plants need some sort of pollination and most food crops need, you know, um, to have a, a bee or a wasp or a bat or a bird come and pollinate to, to preserve that, to, to have that plant variety continue to exist. So um, we see that as, as really important on our farm to to have variety and and we do plant native plants for the purpose of of just helping out the ecosystem really. Wild willows farming methods complement the ecosystem and uses nature to combat pests. At the farm, we we show our style of agriculture, which is embracing biodiversity. It's taking care of the soil. We teach about composting and we'll apply compost to add organic matter to our soils. There's so many benefits. Fertilizer, nutrition retention, water infiltration, water storage. And we, we're we doing it without any, you know, assistance from uh, chemical pesticides or herbicides or anything like that. So we we have perennial flowering plants at all times and we we do specific plantings so that we encourage the natural predation of you know of the bad bugs that that will come around we have raptor perches um, we have chickens that were unfortunately were you know a few years ago decimated by a, a coyote that kind of lived on the property um, but we look at that as you know that's a challenge um, but hopefully that coyote is helping us um, with the rabbits and the squirrels and all the gophers and everything else that's that's a challenge Wild Willow Farm takes its educational role seriously, yet another cultural service, and how it can set an example for the people it serves. I think it's really important that uh, the land where we are, for one, there's an agricultural legacy there, but there's also a history of people living in the land for 10,000 years, and people lived off the land, and um, it's, you know, our impacts that have, I think, as humans, cause some of the degradation to, you know, the water quality. I see 
the farm as being important as kind of an educational piece and and showing people that there's an alternative to uh, you know conventional farming. This is a, something that anyone can do in their home garden and and the benefits of just caring for the soil and seeing you know the life that exists. Unlike Wild Willow Farm, Los Laureles Canyon, south of Borderfield State Park on the Mesco side, is separated from the coastal wetland and its ecosystem services by topography and a border fence. Most of the residents have never been to the estuary, including Adela Bonilla Armenta. This poses a question about how people separated from the ecosystem, in this case by a border, experience its services. My name is Adela Bonilla Armenta. For 20 years, I've lived in Los Loretas Canyon. Plastics upcycling craftsperson Adela Bonilla lives in a colonia, our neighborhood of the Mexican city of Tijuana, that was rapidly urbanized and outpaced municipal services needed to support the communities that lived there, like waste collection. Migrant and low-income families are most likely to inhabit erosive areas including canyons, like Los Laureles, where flooding occurs and is exacerbated by debris that blocks channels adding to the vulnerability and marginalization of these communities. This trash is carried by floodwaters, also presenting a major threat to the health of the Tijuana Estuary downstream. I live here in the canyon, and when it rains, if it rains a lot, it's very difficult for the cars to enter here. They stop halfway because the channel opens and the streets end because a lot of the trash goes into the water and everything overflows. Many times, houses that are near the channel have also fallen down in front of us. They have fallen. They have been dismantled. The channel carries a lot of trash. The children cannot go to school since there's no street. They are in danger of being carried away by the current. Many things are limited when it rains and when it's dry. There is also a lot of danger because many people have the habit of burning trash. By burning trash, they run the risk of the house catching fire. Like three days ago, two houses were burned across the street because they had started a trash dump fire. Trash causes a lot of problems here throughout the canyon area. Adela continued to describe the devastating fire incident. At that time, for example, the day before yesterday, when the houses were burned, I felt helpless because they called the firefighters. There is not very good access for them to come. They took a long time. The police arrived first. About a half hour later, the firefighters arrived. The houses had already burned to the ground. There is no access to those areas. When it rains, the channel collapses. It needs to be channeled there. We need to teach the people to be careful and not to litter because many times they come from other places and they throw out the trash on the streets when people aren't looking. The community in Los Laureles Canyon faces dangerous conditions during rains in part because the canyon is lacking in natural features that offer ecosystem services like flood regulation. Here again is Kristen. I think in, in places where communities have been in large part severed from natural resources, and I, I think there's 
probably no better example than here in the border region where we have border infrastructure um, separating communities from some of these natural spaces like the Tijuana Estuary, ensuring that these systems are as healthy as they can be and can generate the as 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 most or as best the ecosystem services that it that it can can allow for some of these other ecosystem services like the provisioning that we were talking about, like like food or fresh water, um, which all kind of feed into this idea that well-being is is tied to healthy ecosystems. Adele is adaptive. She began using the abundance of trash in her community to make upcycled crafts 17 years ago. I have been recycling and doing crafts for many years. I first started teaching craft classes at a community center. Later, we were given the opportunity for a women's collective through Semanat. That's when some of my students at the community center got together and we did the project to continue recycling. The recycling project was offered to me by Semanat, but we were already doing it. I taught classes in making artistic piñatas and crafts using recyclable materials. We focused on what recycling was. We started to do recycling because in this whole area there's a lot of trash, which for me is raw material. We make things from recycled materials and then help ourselves financially by selling them. Often, efforts must be focused upstream to address issues like solid waste at the source to reduce marine debris downstream. As the reserve system studies how to measure cultural ecosystem services, the Tijuana Estuary's cross-border approach may offer an example of an indirect yet possible way to conceptualize a service in a community that is separated from it. Reserved by National Liaison Ana Aguirre and Kristen Goodrich collaborated with Adela on an idea, eventually supported by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Marine Debris Program through funding from the United States Mexico Canada Agreement Implementation Act. It involves piloting a circular economy project with partners to demonstrate ways to repurpose debris that had no other value or recycling potential, ultimately creating opportunity for income generation among those affected by the situation by selling products. By taking trash out of the system, this process also reduces flood risk and prevents it from reaching and impacting the habitats downstream. I had the opportunity to be in a meeting with people from the estuary, and they presented some products that were being made with a machine that interested me a lot. I have been ironing plastic with a regular iron at home for 17 years, and I was very interested in the machine. Now I have the opportunity to have the machine. And for me, the plan is to work with it right now, and for the time being, experimenting with new materials and making products and giving workshops to people who care. I was motivated by the recycling project because I saw that many things can be recycled. For example, aluminum is recycled and sold. Cardboard can be sold, but no one really buys plastic bags, and that is what we have the most of here in the entire canyon. 
I first started with my piñatas. I started making them myself, then teaching how to make them. And then I got more involved with recyclable materials because I see there is a lot of trash. Everything goes to the sea. Everything that is plastic mainly plastic, because it is the least valuable. People do not buy it. They do not collect it. That's why I focused on recycling plastic more than anything. Adela enjoys her work and wishes she can keep some of her products, but she needs to earn a living. What I have liked the most, and what I like the most, is everything I do. I would like to keep everything I do, but we have to be able to produce and generate some income. I've made many handbags by hand with a household iron. Purses, bags, tablecloths, placemats, things like that. I also love piñatas. They are large, artistic piñatas. I don't make small piñatas. I like everything. I love everything that is recycled. Indigenous peoples make many things from natural fibers here in Southern California. The Kumeyaay traditionally build tule boats from wetland plants. Adela, in a canyon with few natural resources left, makes something beautiful, functional, and valuable out of trash. While the connection is severed, the wetland's existence has implications for the people who inhabit places upstream. One thing we did talk about was that, you know, despite being so so limited in these other categories, the supporting, the provisioning, the regulating, within the cultural ecosystem services, the educational component, I think, is one that'll be really interesting to explore how to measure. And also the, you know, unique emphasis uh, on Los Laureles Canyon, because of its proximity to the Tijuana Estuary, has brought in a really significant interest among researchers, <laughs> social scientists, and, and other kinds of social scientists to understand this kind of unique bioregion and ways, again, that we can think about a social ecological system. And so while it's not the most immediate ecosystem service that comes to mind when you think of a cultural ecosystem service, it might um, be something that we try to really think about how to how to measure differently for communities that are, in our case, adjacent to the estuary, divided by a border, yet yet um, may still have some exposure to some kind of ecosystem service or some type of benefit, but it might not be the most immediate or direct. And I think that's just an opportunity for some really interesting research and practice in this area. There is a natural kind of desire to try to quantify ecosystem services using economics. But according to Kristen, it's only one tool in a toolbox. I think by uh, pursuing different ways of, of knowing um, and different ways of understanding, whether it's through interviews or you know, different ways of developing methods to better understand how to develop metrics and indicators for measuring cultural ecosystem services, I think there's just enormous potential to be able to better advocate for, for the values or the ecosystem services that natural places like the Tijuana Estuary can provide.
Cultural ecosystem services encompass the many ways the environment contributes to human well-being through experiences, connections to people in place, sustenance, relationships, and more. Their stories, one of a regenerative farmer adjacent to the reserve on the U.S. side, another an upcycling craftsperson separated from the coastal wetland by an international border, gives us a way to think about how we live from, in, with, and as the Tijuana Estuary with a lens of ecosystem services and focus on livelihoods. Greg Cady and the team at Wild Willow Farms benefit from the ecosystem services the Tijuana River Valley provides. Adela Bonilla, who has never visited the Tijuana Estuary, is giving it and her community a chance to recover and a new life to the trash that is ever-present in the canyon. Thanks to Kristen Goodrich, Greg Cady, and Adela Bonilla for their time in sharing about their work. We are grateful to the National Estuarine Research Reserve System, in particular the Heia and Kachemak Bay Reserves, for their leadership and transfer of knowledge in this area of research and practice. Thank you for listening to Divided Together, brought to you by Parse California and the generosity of an anonymous donor. Adam Greenfield is the engineer and co-producer of this podcast. I'm Anne-Marie Tipton, your guide and co-producer. <laughs>